Well, I wonder if you've ever asked the question, is God at work in this world? Or maybe you've asked the question in your own life at different times. Is God at work in, in my life? How can I know for sure? How can I know that God is actually at work, that it's not just circumstances and uh, things that seem to work together? It's not some sort of fatalistic view of the world. See, we all ask from time to time, don't we, is God at work in my life? And if so, how? How do we know? And oftentimes when we come to a question like this, we say something that's overly simplistic. We think to ourselves, well, I pray and I pray for something good and the good thing happens. God must be at work in our lives. And of course, that's true. But by the same token, we say, well, if that prayer is not answered, God mustn't be at work in our lives. And that's not true. See, it's not as simple just to draw a straight line from our good circumstances or our good feelings to God being at work in our lives. This is more and more the case in the world in which we live and even in the Christian world in which we live. We want the plans and purposes of God for our lives to be good, to be excellent, to be comfortable, to be wonderful. And it's just not what the Bible says about God being at work in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. John chapter 5 makes it really clear. Jesus says, my father is always working and so am I. God is always at work. But the way in which God is at work in our lives is, well, it's based on his purposes and his plans and his salvation and his glory. And the good news for us is that, that God calls us as followers of the Lord Jesus to draw us into his bigger cosmic plans. And he even blesses us in that process, using us for his glory and for our good. But it's very hard for us to draw a straight line between the good life and the life where God is at work in our life. And the narrative of the story of Joseph is exactly this story. It shows us from beginning to end, from chapter 37 of the book of Genesis all the way through to chapter 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis, that God is definitely at work through this fledgling nation called Israel and through this man called Joseph. But it's interesting to navigate this story as we work it through. See, as we'll see over the next few weeks, as Joseph and his life gets further on, his life often gets harder. You might put it this way. God's plans in his life saw to it that Joseph's life was effectively ruined. And yet God was at work. And what it does for us is it, it changes our thought patterns and our ways of understanding how God is actually at work in this world and actually at work in our lives. And it asks us to take on a new set of criteria by which we understand whether God is indeed at work in this world and in our lives. And this morning, I want to take us just on the first part of that journey as we look at Genesis chapter 37. And I want to show you how God is at work behind the scenes, navigating the events of history so that salvation might come through this bloodline. And eventually, salvation might come through the Lord Jesus. And how God continues to work for the good of the gospel cause in our own lives as well today. We're going to look together at the start of this story. Genesis chapter 37. 
We're going to work our way through it and then find some implications for us in our own life as well. But as always, I'll uh, 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 get you to ask some questions. Uh, Slido.com, the hashtag to ask a question so I can see it, is HB for Helensburg, SP for Stanwell Park. I'm going to pray and then we'll have a look at this uh, part of the Bible together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your son, Jesus. So please help us today to engage with your word so that we might once again uh, see uh, your work in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our lives. And we ask it in his powerful name. Amen. Well, as far as I can tell, there may only be one. James, how old are you now? 15, not quite 17. There's only one person in this congregation. It'll be different tonight, completely different. It'll be the complete exact opposite. I might have to ask if there's anyone over 17 tonight. But there's only one person under the age of 17 here this morning, only one. So I'll ask this question of everyone else except for you, James, but stay awake anyway. Who else uh, can remember their 17th birthday? Anyone remember it? A few people can remember this. Mine, I can't remember mine. Mine was not particularly memorable at age 17. Well, it is. That's is it? Sixteen and nine months, wasn't it back then? It was a long time ago, Rod. No, no, sixteen. Put that in Slido. I, I don't know. This might be a, this might be a thing we can't work out at this moment. That's okay. You can you can remember one way or the other. I, I can tell you this though. I can tell you this. Age seventeen is a significant age. Whether it's because of licences, and certainly that can be the case. But it's certainly a lot of people around the age of 17 come to a strong faith, don't they? A lot of people find that that's a really important time in their life for their faith and their journey with the Lord Jesus. As well as that, lots of people find themselves coming into greater and greater levels of maturity. Uh, perhaps that's because uh, for the first time they get a job with responsibilities put upon them that they must fulfil. Uh, perhaps it's that they get that first really important relationship the member of the opposite sex, it's really uh, changing and shaping their lives. Whatever it is, though, age 17 is a wonderful age. Lots of energy, lots of changes and shapes in life, lots of options open for the future. And what you're hoping at age 17 is not that you get thrown down a well, sold as a slave and live in another country for the rest or for the next 25 years of your life. You hoping for that, James? No, that's all right, it's all right. It's all right. We can organise it if you want. No, no, no. That's what happened to Joseph. That's what happened to Joseph. At age 17, at that important age, we find that he was sold, uh, thrown down the well, sold as a slave and ended up in Egypt all in quick shape time. But before we get there, just a reminder of where we've come from so far in this book of Genesis, as we've had a bit of a break from this series over the last few weeks. Genesis, in fact, the, the Bible generally is, a, is the story of the promise-keeping God. And you might remember God made his promises to his man Abraham, the promises of land and offspring and blessing. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and these verses and these three promises become the index by which we read the rest of the Old Testament. Has God fulfilled his promises? How are the promises going? Are the promises secure? Will God keep his promises? And he delivers these three promises to a family, to a bloodline, to the family that started with Abraham and then came to Isaac and then Jacob. And as we've seen throughout this series so far, this family is really messed up. Now, there's all sorts of ways this family is messed up. Here are just a few. 
Abraham and Isaac both pretended that their wives were not actually their wives, but their sisters in order to keep their own backside safe and in the so doing put their wives at danger. Jacob and Esau, the twins of Isaac, fought over the birthright, who was the firstborn. One despised the birthright and the other achieved the birthright by deception. Jacob then married a woman, but it was the wrong woman. Work out how that happened. By deception himself. And in the end, he ended up with four wives and 12 boys and favourite wives and favourite children. And it's a messy, messy family. And as we look in chapters 37 to 50, we're only going to see that it gets worse. And yet right throughout these chapters, right throughout the book of Genesis, right throughout the Bible, we have found already that God himself is faithful, faithful to his promises, even amidst all the mess of the people that he entrusts his promises to. And the good news for us is it's the same today. In Jesus Christ, God gives his promises to us. He gives his word to us. And if your life is all over the place, you're in good company. We all remain sinners in need of a saviour that has been delivered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is always faithful to his promises. And in chapters 37 to 50, this man Joseph takes centre stage. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who is also known as Israel. He was the 11th born child, the firstborn son of the wife that Jacob loved. The firstborn son of Rachel. And so as a result, Joseph is his father's favourite son. And as Joseph takes centre stage in these chapters 37 through to 50, I want you to notice how skillfully written this passage, this section of the scriptures is. For while Joseph takes centre stage, God does not take centre stage. In fact, God is well and truly in the background of these chapters but not out of view completely. For God himself is at work in the background, working through the real events and real people of history, through all of their sin and messed upness in order to bring about his plans and purposes for the good of his people and most of all, the good of his promises. And so we read in verse 2 that Joseph at 17 years of age is his father's favourite, and we know it because he's got the special robe. And we all know about the robe, don't we, from the kids' stories or the musicals that have happened over the years. And many people have spilled lots of ink trying to work out what the, what the coat looked like. The coat of many colours. Did it really have many colours, or was it ornamental, or did it have lots of jewels on it, or what did it have? And in the end, it doesn't matter what the coat looks like. In the end, what the code means is more important than anything. Joseph received this coat and his other brothers did not. What this coat means is that Jacob, his father, was favouring one of his children over another. Now, he should know better. This already happened in his life as he was one of the favoured children. He was favoured by his mother and not favoured by his father. He should know better. And just so you know, this is not a good way to parent children in any way, shape or form. If you've got a favourite child, keep it to yourself. 
But it's interesting, isn't it? Though there was a favourite child, the, the writer, the narrator of this passage for us tells us with no moral import at all, just tells us the bare facts. Joseph was the favourite. But as Ella's mentioned, Joseph, as a 17-year-old young man, enjoys rubbing his other brother's noses in this. He didn't like it. Verse 2 goes on to say, He was a boy with the sons of Bilhar and Zilpah, that's the other brothers, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Verse 2 tells us, Joseph is a snitch or a dobber. I don't know. Who called it a snitch when they were a kid? Who called it a dobber when they were a kid? I really, I, I called it a dobber as well. Um, but snitch is so much better. You know the saying, snitches get stitches. That works in the playground much better than the other one. I used to say, we used to say, Yarrawarra Public School, circa 1980, uh, dibber dobbers wear nappies. Did anyone else used to say that? Okay, that's good. I'm glad it wasn't a Yarrawarra thing. It's so not hardcore though, is it? Snitches get stitches is way better. But anyway, here we have this man who is a snitch going to tell his dad, dad, the brothers are doing the wrong thing. We don't know what they were doing, but clearly they were cranky with him. Verse four tells us they hated him and could not even speak to him peacefully. Now you'd hope that Joseph could read the room by this point, but he can't. Joseph gets two dreams. Now we'll find as time goes on throughout the narrative of Joseph, these are actually God-given dreams telling him real things that will happen in the real future. But still, Joseph, just shut your mouth. Do you really need to say this? I wonder if you notice as Mandy read for us verses 5 through to 11. Joseph is filled with glee as he gives the report of these dreams, isn't he? Do you notice how many times he says the word behold? It's just with his eyes open and he's so excited about what he's saying. Listen, guys, this is fantastic. Listen to this dream that I've had. It's so exciting. There's this dream about wheat and we're all bales of wheat and uh, sheaves of wheat and you're going to bow down to me. How great is that? And then I had this other one. And there's the sun, moon and stars and that's our whole family and, and you guys are all going to bow down to me. How wonderful. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, this is already messy, isn't it? There's a favourite son, there's a favourite wife, there's all sorts of problems, they hate him, but it's about to get worse. Verse 12 tells us uh, that the other brothers were out pasturing the flocks while Joseph is at home with his father. Now, that's interesting by itself, isn't it? It reminds us of what happened with Jacob and Esau. Esau went out to do all the, the work in the fields. Jacob was at home. Uh, doing his own thing with his mum at home. It's a little flashback and a reminder to us. Nevertheless, Joseph is asked to go and get a, give another report of what the brothers are doing. Verse 14 says, go and bring me word. And so he says, okay, Dad, I will. And off he goes and he finally finds the brothers to get the report. And as they see him coming, they come up with a plan. Let's kill this boy verse 18 they saw him from afar and before he came near to them they conspired against him to kill him brothers and sisters don't always get on really well but this is kind of escalating things a little bit isn't it 
I remember a friend at school who I won't mention because it's being live streamed, who knows where this will end up, staying over at his place and him telling me that at some occasions he and his brother would have such strong fights that it would finish with them throwing objects at each other across the room. And on one particular occasion, uh, one brother threw a screwdriver at the other brother, end over end over end, he ducked down just in time and it went point first into the uh, solid wooden door behind them. Now, I still don't think the goal was death on that occasion. I mean, they didn't like each other and they were having a fight, but in the end, the goal was not death. But here the goal is death. Verse 18, they conspired to kill him. Here comes this dreamer, let's kill him. But Reuben steps in and there's a bit of a change. Look at verse 21. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him instead into this pit here, into the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue them out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when, they, uh, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours, the signature robe that he wore. They took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. So imagine the scene. Here is Joseph down this pit, yelling out most likely, screaming to get back out of there. What are you guys doing? Get me out of there. And what do the brothers do? Verse 25, they have smoker. It's time to eat. It's lunchtime. Not really that perturbed about it, are they? Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. They're not worried at all. And while they're at lunch, while they're on their smoko break, a caravan of, now that's not a Millard caravan or some sort of grey nomad thing. This is a group of people walking, coming along from uh, one place to another of Ishmaelites or Midianites. These groups had intermarried the, son, the sons of Abraham, the Ill, illegitimate sons of Abraham, were coming along, not the people of the promise. And we find out that Judah has a new plan. Uh, verse 27 tells us the new plan. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let, us not, and let our hand not be upon him, for he is our own brother, our own flesh. Quite an argument, isn't it? He's our real brother, guys. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him to a faraway country and we'll never know where he went. Makes sense. Well, they all agree to this and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver and he's on his way to Egypt. But Reuben missed all of this. Perhaps Reuben was on smoko break in the Portaloo out the back somewhere and was uh, doing his business, but he wasn't there. Verse 29 tells us he returns to the pit and when he finds that Joseph was not there, he tears his clothes. He's not happy about this. He tried to step in, but it didn't work. And all the while he'd been sold to Egypt. Now the plan is, how are we going to tell dad? So they get his signature uh, robe and they tear it and they slaughter a goat and dip the robe in blood and take it back to their father. And no one can console Jacob. His favourite son is gone, dead by all accounts. And yet it's an interesting detail once again, isn't it, for us to realise that as Jacob himself was deceived by a dead animal and some clothing, so he was deceived in the same manner by his children as well. Well, we find Joseph ends up, verse 36, in Egypt. 
and an important detail we'll come back to in the weeks to come, is that he was sold to an important family, the family of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, a high official, an important detail in our, uh, in our narrative that we'll come back to in weeks to come. Now, it's important that we read these chapters together. Chapters 37 to 50 are one long story that really should fit together as a unit. But given that we are going a little more slowly through these chapters, we need to just stop and ask ourselves, what does this chapter in particular teach us in this day and age where we live? What is chapter 37 telling us? Well, you might have noticed that for a large part, God is in the background of this chapter. He's not present in there in an obvious way. Partly this is because the family themselves have become more and more godless over time. But we must then ask ourselves the question, what does it teach us? And as we finish today, I want to bring three things to your attention about what it teaches us, this chapter 37. First, God is at work through his chosen instrument. Now, we've got to do a bit of a spoiler alert here. It's not obvious from this chapter, but Joseph is clearly God's chosen instrument to bring salvation to his people. And not only to his people, but to many people, chapter 50 will tell us. This 17-year-old young man was chosen by God in order to keep the promises of God in safe hands. Now, it's likely he didn't know that. There's no sense in which the dreams that Joseph got were even known by him as dreams from God necessarily. Or with any sort of meaning. He was just happy to get one over the top of his brother's. And it's certainly likely his brothers did not know about the fact that, his bro- uh, that Joseph was the chosen instrument of God. Nevertheless, this is the pattern of God right throughout the scriptures. That God takes his chosen instrument of salvation in the world and he often chooses a strange object, an instrument of salvation. Think of Moses. Moses, who famously said, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I can't even speak properly. Or David, the king of God's people, who would be the king, but he was the one who wasn't even brought to the lineup to be the king. And here there's Joseph. Joseph, a, a young man in a world where the birthright is so important, he is way down the list of importance in his family. Not only that, he's from a family of complete dysfunction. How could he be used by God? Then there's the nation of Israel itself right throughout the scriptures. Even though the nation would get bigger, it still remains in the history of the world a very small and uninfluential nation from its size. And yet God uses it. Then we bring it to our current day and we think of the church. And the church in our current day is hardly impressive. The church of our day is hardly influential, but neither should it be. For God takes great delight in taking the unusual chosen instruments and using those to bring his glory into the world. That's why God uses preaching as a method. Makes no sense, does it? Preaching. Preaching that's hard sometimes to hear, hard sometimes to listen to, hard sometimes to keep our attention. But this is the point. It's God's chosen mechanism in the world so that no glory might come to us but only to God. And then, of course, there is the cross. God's strange chosen instrument 
to bring about salvation to the world. God would choose a, a cross, his son to die a bloody death on a cross in order that we might be saved is such a strange chosen instrument. And yet this is what God does in the world. It's, a, it's his pattern to choose unlikely people, unlikely believers to bring about his plan. Now, let's just be clear. Though Joseph was God's chosen instrument, it's likely here that he didn't know it at this time. And it's clear here that while he was God's chosen instrument, he is still sinful in every way. You might describe him as a prat or a jerk or an entitled git. All of those would be effective. I think they've all got Hebrew alternatives. You can look it up later. But even though that was the case, God used him to bring about the salvation of his people, as we'll see in weeks to come. And the good news for us is this. As people saved by the Lord Jesus, we can be used for the gospel purposes to which God has called us. You know what? You may say of me and I may say of you in my weaker moments, we're not a little, we're quite similar to Joseph. We might not use the words prat, jerk or git, maybe we will. But those words are true of all of us at different times. And yet, and yet, God can still be at work in us because of what Jesus has done for us. We can be the chosen instruments of God's glory because he has saved us for that very purpose that we might declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And this is the great news of God at work through his chosen instruments. Secondly, this passage shows us that the human, uh, that human pride hates bowing before God's leader. Well, we noticed that no one really knew that Joseph was God's chosen instrument. But the very fact that they would even consider bowing down to their younger brother in any sort of way, even their dad says, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Although, as verse 11 says, his father kept the saying in mind. We'll come back to that in weeks to come. But this is the shape of the human heart. The shape of the human heart is that we are naturally rebellious against the one that God would raise up and that we must bow down to. We don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. Think of the apostles and the prophets in the New and the Old Testament. They were killed rather than listened to. And of course, Jesus is our perfect and compassionate Saviour and Lord, who is both gentle and strong, and yet all, even us, changed by the Spirit of God, find it hard to bend the knee in every way to the Lord Jesus, don't we? It's just our natural sinful tendency not to want to bow the knee to the one who is the Lord of all. It's our natural tendency. And just as Joseph was rejected and mocked and stripped and thrown and left for dead and sold. So there are so many similarities to the Lord Jesus who the same things would happen, spat upon and sold and rejected and killed and left for dead. Why? Well, it's the pride of the human heart. In Genesis 37, there is pride everywhere, pride on the part of Joseph, but also pride on the part of the brothers. We'll never bow down to you. 
And we'll see their pride take shape over the next few chapters as well. Well, then finally, it brings us back to our first question. Where is God in a ruined life? I want you to think about where you'll be in 25 years' time. Might be a hard thing to think about. Maybe so. <laughs> That's a good thing. But imagine this for a moment. And, this might, and this, might be, uh, this might be easy to understand. This might be hard to understand. But in the next uh, period of time, the next 25 years, imagine for a moment that this may be the best day of the next 25 years. Imagine that no day in the next 25 years is better than today. That's what it was like for Joseph. Now, of course, Joseph had his ups and downs in the 22 or so years before we get to chapter 50. Nevertheless, it's worth us asking the question, is this what Joseph had planned for his life? Now, the spoiler to all of this story is that God would take this man, Joseph, to Egypt in order to avoid disaster from the famine that would come, in order that God may maintain his promises and the promises not die out. But if you were Joseph walking through the ups and downs of his life, and there's going to be big ones in the next few chapters, you might have been asking, where is God? Where is God when Joseph is down in the pit? Where is God when Joseph is being sold to Egypt? Where is God when he is in jail, as we'll see in the next few weeks? Where is God when Joseph is wrongly accused of things that he did not do wrong? Where is God? And the answer is God is very much at the centre of what is going on in these chapters. God is well and truly at work. And even though the act of the brothers were wicked, even though he will be wrongly accused in chapters to come, even though he will be wrongly imprisoned, as we'll see in the chapters to come, God is very much at work in his ruined life. And we are the same. God is there. And more than that, God is at work when tough things happen in your life. When God feels absent or the circumstances of life say that God is absent, know this, God is not absent. He is very much present. Even when others do wicked, evil things to you. This does not mean God has abandoned you. Because there is no straight line between the good life and what God is doing in your life. The very fact that uh, this man Joseph was down in a pit and made as a slave is for the good of the people. God is right at work in the circumstances of Joseph's life, even though it looks like the whole of his life is ruined. So know this, if the next 25 years of your life are terrible, horrible, and this is the best day you're going to have for the next 25 years, that does not mean God has abandoned you. Just think of the cross. The cross has all the signs of God abandoning the world, abandoning his son, as he is at the hands of wicked men beaten and thrown away. And yet we know that to be the place where God's plans and promises and purposes and salvation and glory is most clearly seen. So how do we know if God is at work in our lives? Well, you and I will answer that question in a different way. See, when we ask, is God at work in our lives, we often want to study the data. 
We want to look at the shape of our life and decide whether or not God is truly at work. But we're studying the wrong data. The data of whether God is at work in our lives is not the circumstances of your life. But the word of God himself. And we're told in the scriptures that God is at work in this world for his good, for his gospel purposes. And he does that through our lives. And that may mean that our circumstances do not get better, but perhaps worse. Nevertheless, will we trust our circumstances and what we can read from that data? Or will we trust God that he is always at work for his glory, for his salvation, for his purposes, for his promises, and know that that is for our good, even when everything else says the contrary? Because in the end, what God is doing through his plans, his promises, his salvation and his glory is better for us than the comfort of what we might get in this life here. And so chapter 37 on its own is a, a lesson for us to trust God at his word, at what he says, even if your life is seemingly ruined by God. You might like to ask a question or two. But at least take time to reflect. Uh, I'm going to give us uh, 90 seconds or so to do that just now. And if you want to ask a question, slido.com, hashtag HBSP. And I'll come back to that in about 90 seconds time. There's a couple of uh, questions here, and we're thankful for those being written. So uh, there's a couple here from, from Rob, to love him according to his purpose, from Romans chapter 8, not my purpose, but his. Yes, thank heavens for that. Um, so let you under the hood about this series a little bit. Uh, there's a few verses that you could use almost every week. Um, I'm holding off on that one, because we'll get to that one down the track a little bit, but that's 100% right. No, it's, no, it's not at all. Oh, don't watch, talk to me. I think it's listen to my entire sermon. There we go. Um, that's all right. They don't understand, yeah. Um, but I, I think the verse is absolutely right, and, uh, and, and, and we'll definitely come back to that through this series. Uh, likewise, Hebrews 11.22, uh, the writer seems to attribute... Now, now, this is really weird. We'll get to this one, because uh, 
Joseph's whole story is summarized in Hebrews 11 by a very weird verse. I won't share it with you now, but it's Hebrews 11.22. You can look it up. It's very weird. We'll come to that verse later in the series as well. Um, uh, but the question here from Rod is, why do you think this hasn't, this awareness uh, hasn't happened yet in chapter 37? I think the reason is because, like all of us, we're, uh, we're people in a timeline of life. And so I did an exercise this week as part of a professional development thing, which asked us to map out our life story and a whole range of other things. But really um, uh, what God has sort of been doing and teaching us through that period of time. What I found really hard is as we divided life into five year uh, chunks, it's really hard to identify what God has been doing personally in my life over the last five, ten years. Very hard to work that out. The, the, it's just too close to see that. But I can look back on whether I'm 17 or whatever, earlier in my life, and see particular aspects of God at work there through both good and, and hard things. I think that's what's going on here. I don't think Joseph's got any idea what's going on, uh, but I think he will down the track. And so I think um, that's why his, his faith will grow, as we'll see as we go through uh, the passage as well. Uh, the last one is, what were the purpose of the dreams for Joseph? This is fascinating. Thanks for the question. Um, multifaceted so so god gave him the dreams he'll look back on those uh in the in uh in the future and see that he's he's gonna get his uh, uh brothers to bow down to him even his dad to bow down to him that will be true second thing is he knows he can interpret dreams that'll become important later on down the track uh and that will that will be a, become a part of the story but also part of the story is god gave him the dreams so that he would be an annoying little git to his brothers and get put down the hole that's that's part of the story so it, it's it's so multifaceted and this is where god is at work in all of the different details of life uh uh, even in the hardships, difficulties and wickednesses that people put on us or we put on them. God is deeply involved in all of those things. He's not the author of wickedness. He doesn't make wicked things happen, uh, but he's right there in the happening of them in order to bring uh, his plans and purposes, and that is the ultimate good out of them. And so the dreams, why did God give him the dreams and all that sort of stuff? It's so multifaceted, like that diamond. Uh, look at it at all different angles and different cuts. So I think, uh, I think that's why... Uh, the, the, the purposes are there and there may even be more than just that, that that we haven't seen just yet let me pray and then we'll sing for the final time Heavenly Father we thank you so much for speaking to us in your word and we ask please that uh, you would remind us uh, of your work in this world and your work in our lives because of the grace of Jesus Christ we thank you for giving us the gift of the Lord Jesus we thank you for working in our lives through the good and the bad, in order that we might uh, continue to live for your gospel purposes in this world. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, uh, that you might continue to help us uh, to bow the knee to your chosen instrument, the Lord Jesus, who brought salvation for all people. Please help us to bow the knee to him. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you might help us as well not to read the wrong set of data in our own lives uh, and seek your presence in areas that you've never promised uh, to give it but we pray instead that you would help us to trust your word that you are always at work for your promises for your plan for your salvation for your glory and that is for our ultimate good and we ask please heavenly father you'd give us the grace and the faith to trust that and we pray it in jesus powerful name amen well please stand we're going to sing our